Hey beer nerds, welcome to the podcast. It's been a minute since I've done one of these. I, uh, I apologize. I've been pretty busy with some uh, some things going on in grad school and work and things like that. Um, I wanted to do something special though, so I decided to go to Cincinnati where they're making some great beer, uh, especially just in the uh, state of Ohio in general. But uh, in Cincinnati, um, just, it's just booming over there with with new releases uh, seemingly every, every week uh, somewhere. So you know, I spoke with Listerman, and um, I visited with Mad Tree. Uh, we talked a lot about, you know, just what what it means to be an Ohio brewery, uh, innovation, um, organizational culture, all the all the fun stuff that uh, that takes a successful business um, to operate. So yeah, if you uh, just want to enjoy these two interviews coming up, I'd appreciate it. And then also, if you'd be able to to um, Get on the social media links as uh, like Facebook and Instagram and and uh, my own Twitter. Um, for Facebook and Instagram, you can find me on Building Breweries, and then uh, my own Twitter is Molder MD. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at Michael at BuildingBreweries.com. I'd be happy to uh, field any questions you might have if you're interested in advertising or sponsoring, or um, you know maybe if you have a brewery in mind that you want me to interview. Uh, I'm open to any possibility. Uh, I am looking for guest hosts, so if you want to learn more about that, feel free to shoot me an email at michael at buildingbreweries.com. Enjoy. Joined by Dan Listerman, the founder, and Jason Brewer, the general manager. Guys, thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So, Dan, the, the story begins as a uh, homebrew manufacturing supply. Is that correct? In about 1991 we, or so? We started in 91 uh, out of my basement, moved to the Hamilton County Business Development Center for three and a half years, and they helped me buy this building in 95. Uh, we manufactured stuff until about 2008 when we got our brewing license. Homebrew equipment, uh, mills, barge arms, bottle fillers, louder tons, all sorts of things. Uh, after a while, that got to be less lucrative than running the homebrew shop we have here. Uh, and we took up a, a brewery, and we bought a small two-barrel brewery and took up brewing. So it took you took you about 17 years or so for you to get started with the uh, with the brewery? Uh, is that how it calculates out? I yeah, guess I guess so. I so. think so. Okay. Excellent. And so you, you got the brewing. Uh, company started in 2008. Um I read that it was kind of slow to start. Is that oh, correct? Oh, yeah. It was because um, I was the brewer and the salesman. My my great-grandfather, Louis Listerman, was a salesman for Felsenbrough. Evidently, that trait isn't carried on the Y chromosome. <laughs> uh, we hired Kevin Moreland, who, uh, a late of uh, Taft's Brewing, uh, who really gave us a big goose. Also, back then, the tap rooms, we weren't allowed to have a tap room in Ohio. So everything you made, you had to, to go out and sell yourself as opposed to having people visit your location and being able to drink it on site. Okay. And Jason, how did you get involved with Listerman? I hung around long enough for Dan to start paying me and uh, started working two days a week in the homebrew store, mopping the floors and, and doing the physical labor. And, you know, I'm a big believer in doing your job and the job you want to do. So, you know, started helping out in the brewery and doing marketing stuff on top of my other stuff. And, you know, they hired me to work two days a week here. And I don't think I've ever worked two days a week in the five and a half years I've been here. Okay. What kind of beers do you all focus on here? 
So we have long been known for being a dark beer brewery. You know, if you want a dark beer in Cincinnati, you basically come to us. We have a we've won a GABF medal for our peanut butter porter. We won best of show in Fobab for our barrel aged uh, hazelnut brown ale. And just in January, we started making some New England style IPAs, and got tired of trading for them, so started making those. And it's really been um, kicked off from there, and we're becoming more and more known for our New England style IPAs. Uh, we started canning that back in January too, and that's been a, a big, 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 big help. As far as canning goes, I mean, what kind of um, when a when a new brewery or when a brewery starts canning, I mean, what kind of logistic logistical um, challenges do you all face? It was that? pretty pretty simple. We yeah. hired somebody to do it for us. Oh, excellent. <laughs> all right, and what's what's your distribution like? We're very 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 local. We we do get to Columbus and Dayton every once in a while, but everything else is is pretty much Cincinnati. No no Kentucky, no Indiana, nothing like that. That's we don't need to do that. So going back to your previous question, had uh, we use mobile canning, so we don't have to have the infrastructure and the the big outlay of money to buy a, a canning line, and also the space. You know, they come in and take a whole bunch of space up, but then they leave and we get that space back. So we have a, a mahine for our bottled projects, like our peanut butter porter and our hazelnut brown ale and our barrel aged stuff, and then for the the New England style IPAs and possibly some other things this summer, uh, we're we using cans. Okay. Now I noticed that you all are. Basically, just right across the street from Xavier University. What kind of do you, do you have a relationship with the, with the students that go there at all? Or I mean, what do you, what do you find? Well, we're going to try to change that this fall, but we're basically the big scary brick building across the street from from Xavier. You know, we get tons of faculty that come through, and uh, Xavier kids generally come here their last week of school. You know, they've passed by this building and not known what it was this whole time, and so they'll be like, "This is awesome!" I didn't know it was across the street. So uh, we got to fix that. And there's also a contingent of Xavier students that will come here every week, like twice a week, and not tell anybody so that we remain their hole-in-the-wall oh, place. They, they want to be the Right, that nobody place. else okay. knows about. So I appreciate those kids. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, Cincinnati's become quite the beer city, I think. Um, and you all were one of the first to kind of kick, get, get that started. Would you say that's correct? I would say it's, it's correct in a way and not. You know, we were the second, and Mount Carmel was around for a couple years in Cincinnati before we opened, and we were the second craft brewery to open in Cincinnati. But really, if you look at it on a deeper level with what Dan was doing and what we were doing before that, it really was the basis of the Renaissance, not just here, but, you know, around the country. I'm it all leaving, starts with homebrew. Yeah, I'm leaving today to go to the homebrew conference, and, you know, I'm sure there's going to be tons of people there that will see Listerman and be able to harken back to when Dan was mailing out supplies. You know, we go to GABF, and these other. I got stopped at Avery by somebody down in, in um, Charlotte. He's like, hey, are you with the Listerman from, you know, the manufacturing? And it's like, yeah. He's like, that's how I got. And he owns one of the most popular breweries in North Carolina. And he got to start buying supplies from Dan. So yeah. it's, it's kind of like a yes to both of those questions. Yeah. No, it, it all starts with the homebrew story. These guys, you know, typically, you know, people were just bored and wanted to start brewing. And um, they just ended up buying a brewery. Now, now I was reading, Dan, that uh, your homebrew story Started off kind of rough yourself. You, you tried a few bashes at first, yeah. and then took a, took a little break. Yeah, in 1973, I made a walked into a drugstore and I found a pound of malt, an ounce of hops, and I was supposed to boil that up with five pounds of sugar and put it in a new garbage can. Were you able to hungry back then? No, not legally. Okay. And I used Fleshman's uh, bread yeast. It was terrible, and I did it four or five times afterwards, and it just kept getting worse. I gave it up and. 
eventually my old roommate in 87, I think it was, Johnson, Brian Johnson called and he said, hey, let's make some beer. I go, Johnson, you know what to do. And he convinced me and my brother to go up and we made some beer. It was fantastic. And uh, that would ruin my engineering career right there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You know, I, I so as I mentioned earlier, Cincinnati's become quite the, the beer city. Are there any other cities in the United States that you would say are, is comparable? You know, just kind of on the same level. Uh, you know, not having gone to a whole lot of cities. Sure. Um, that I mean, I go to a lot of cities, but you know, you can't go to all of them. It's like you know, we have more breweries in Asheville, but Asheville they're closer together, and you know, we you know, Cincinnati, believe it or not, has a, a really large population. They're like twenty five in the metro. Uh, rankings start top 30 so it's really hard to rate the number of breweries to the metro because it's really a huge metro um, station so you know like a lot of things in Cincinnati I think it's a bit unique where you know it's it's a lot I think it's a lot more spread out than what other cities have you know Mad Tree's uh, close to us and they're two or three miles and then you know we're two or three miles from downtown and there's a couple breweries down there and then you'll find some that are like 40 miles out and still considered Cincinnati so you know it's really kind of unique in and how they're laid out and again not being to every city it's unique to the cities that I, I typically go to fair enough um you know I, I follow different you know um beer groups on Facebook Cincinnati beer groups and I, I feel like I'm always seeing every weekend pictures of different beer releases that you all have and you, you typically just have lines out the door for these releases um how how important is innovation with these with these beer releases and you know just kind of the creativity of coming up with a new with a new style and just getting people excited about it it's absolutely pivotal you know the day that we do the same thing every day is the day i quit and you know it's you know, we're, we really take heart of our homebrewing roots. You know, we're, we're always testing the limits of, you know, what people think um, can, a beer can happen, you know. Uh, and Dan, Dan falls into this, too. We've made Chacao for now five years, and every year Dan predicts the death of Chacao. Like, <laughs> this is the year that people will stop drinking Chacao, and, you know, people are, ju- people are also searching for that innovative stuff and that new stuff. So it's really, really important to us that we are constantly changing and constantly challenging ourselves and, and really making new products. When somebody walks in the door, the first thing out of their mouth is "What's new?" Mm. And you just gotta you just gotta feed that. Have you ever had a a beer release just kind of flop before? Maybe just you, you, maybe uh, hyped up and then just didn't go as planned. I don't know if I would say flopped, but you know we're kind of seeing it now with these you know New England style IPAs. A lot of them people haven't even had before. We just get it because of our reputation. And then recently we did a you know some of our barrel age our barrel age releases will get 20% of the people that an IPA release will get. And I was like, you know, we won Fobab last year. Like we make good barrel age beers and you know, it's just, it's just kind of crazy to see. And I guess that, you know, if you also look at it from the market standpoint, IPAs are dominating the market. So it gets people a little bit more excited than barrel age, barrel age releases. So, yeah. Um, so well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say necessarily they flop, but it's just, it's because we, you know, our last, we did barrel age Chacao and, the line was around the, the corner and, you know, there's still people here for it, but it's just not in comparison to when we do the IPAs. Absolutely. What, what are we drinking today? Uh, this is Sabotage. So it's kind of our our form of uh, the milkshake. So it's got uh, lactose, vanilla, and strawberries. All right. And we also use some uh, Belma hops to really accentuate the strawberry flavor. Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, the building that we're in right now? It's is it your second building since starting the? Uh, no, uh, since we left the business incubator, it's, it's our first building. Uh, the area you're in right now is 1927 construction. There's a 1948 edition and a 1962 edition. It's a 
12,800 square feet. It occupies the whole end of the block. It's kind of like a land's castle. If you, the further you get into it, the bigger it seems. It's, it's kind of funny that way. I believe it was built as a uh, commercial dry cleaner back in, in the day. All right. And the room we're sitting in right now is where the store used to be. So, you know, where the tap room now is probably the fifth or sixth different spot the bar has been oh. uh, for here. You know, because we, we had this building since 95 and the tap room law changed. So we just kind of had to make do with our space. Uh, so right now it's sitting um, where Dan's old office used to be. The kitchen's where Dan's other old office and my old office used to be. And, you know, we moved back over there and this is where the homebrew store used to be. And we uh, had a, a winery and distillery that shared the building. And Dan likes to mention at one point it was the only a licensed distillery in Ohio was in this building and they moved to um, another part of town, St. Bernard. And then we took over their spot for the store. So it's been, this place has just been in the last five years, you know, I, don't, I want this to stop changing. Everything else can keep <laughs> changing. Uh, but if we're getting to where we would be, if we started up fresh. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the tap room law earlier. Um, I guess we're coming up on maybe the one year anniversary of the ABV uh, limit. Um, you know, being raised essentially. How friendly is Ohio and to to brewers really? You know, extremely. I mean, extremely friendly. You know, you look at well, you don't even want to go south to look at regulations. Um, <laughs> but you know, we're allowed to self distribute now. There's no ABV law. Before twelve wasn't that big of a deal. You know, you could work around twelve. It's not like it's Utah or anything. And you know, the Congress seems to be pretty pretty lenient to changing things at the state at the state level for us. So. I don't. I, I think it's a very, very favorable state to yeah, be I feel in Ohio. Like, I feel like um, Kasich is pretty beer friendly, or at least he seems to be. Yeah, and it, it you know it also fosters a lot of really small breweries because you know you don't have to open. You know, I was in a, a brewery in Mississippi, and they were like three months old, and they were already bigger than us, and uh, it was out of necessity. They couldn't sell beer out of their tap room, so they had to be in four states uh, just to make to break even. So in Ohio, you can have that tap room. You know, you can make 400 barrels a year and just be content and happy with just having your own neighborhood bar. And I think that's really where the future is. And Ohio is really well set up for the neighborhood bars and the small, small nano breweries. If you had to compare yourself to another brewery in the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky area, first of all, would you? And secondly, which, which brewery would that be? Maybe, uh, maybe in style and size. Yeah, I think that, that'd be unfair to both of us because, you know, I don't know if anyone would want to be compared to someone as crazy oh. as Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we really pride ourselves on doing some, some unique styles. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that no one in Cincinnati is doing that, but no one on Cincinnati quite does it on a consistent basis like really like we do. And that's kind of how we separate ourselves from the rest of the um, the market, so to speak. Where, does, where do you see Listerman? Uh, being in you know five years well hopefully with a rooftop bar so we're there's a plenty of big rooftop space up here so that's kind of our our long-term goal um, we're not going to grow that we might double what we're doing now so i think the target's like three thousand to thirty five hundred barrels a year and you know if we can sell all of that out of this tap room that would be that'd be the goal the goal is 100 percent beer sold out of the out of this building but i know that's not going to happen but you know the further we work towards that the, the better off we're going to be in the long run and what kind of challenges are you facing today? Uh, well, again, you know, we're lucky because we don't just make an IPA and a lager and a pale ale for the shelves. You know, if we had to worry about selling our flagship IPA to 
100 different accounts and X amount of this beer and Y amount of that beer, we'd be in trouble. But, you know, the great thing about Nutcase and Chacao is they, A, they're so unique that, you know, there's not going to be anything else really locally close to them. And B, they have a really long shelf life. So we don't, you know, we can put them in storage and, you know, they're going to be fine in two months as opposed to an IPA or a lager might get a little stale after after two months. So that's a, uh, a, a big advantage for us. Uh, the, the bigger challenge is that we're family owned. My wife and I and the bank own the business. So we don't have outside finance. And uh, we have to, we're trying to do it, bootstrap it. And so the money comes in kind of slowly. And so we, we're trying to grow into things. Excellent. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, that's, a, that's a challenge, but it's also an advantage. You know, you really have to, you know, you know where your money's coming from, know what your margins are, you know, know what's going to make you money, what's not. And, you know, I look at it as an advantage because, you know, you're, you have to earn things. You just can't be given things from some fancy investor or anything like that and just get whatever you want. You know exactly how much effort you put in getting that fermenter in here and, and building this room out. And it's, it's been quite, quite, a, quite a ride. Can you tell me a little bit about the Fiona release that you just had? Yes. Yeah, so it was a bit nuts here. Uh, we had about 350 people in line before we even opened and the line went the biggest line we've ever had by far and you know fiona is a premature baby hippo born at the zoo and uh, if if you ask someone about in cincinnati about fiona they know about her she's kind of like our little sebastian and uh so everyone here loves her and our brewers if they're on their phone they're literally watching videos of fiona and so, you know, sitting down at the bar talking with a zoo employee, like, how can we help Fiona? And like, like we make beer, so let's make a beer. And uh, they took it up the chain, and the zoo was like, okay. And we're like, okay, we'll give 25% of the proceeds to Fiona. And uh, the first release was this Saturday, and it was far and away the best day we've ever had here. And I think it's a great experience. for We had tons. You could tell who was a beer person and who was a hippo person in line. So it was a great combination of, you know, beer people and non-beer people. And I think a lot of people really, you know, experiencing what a beer line's like for people that don't know beer. And, you know, I think um, a lot of people really enjoyed that. Excellent. And we made it, obviously we made it, not so obvious, but we made it a New England style IPA because, you know, we're, again, going back to our homebrew roots, trying to educate people about what different things are, what hops do, and, and different things. So New England style IPA, the beer nerds know about it, but the general public does not. So making this beer something that, you know, the beer nerds and the general public will want and kind of introducing them to the style. Yes, uh, introducing them to the style is, is something that we were looking forward to doing. And, uh, you know, we're going to make this beer at least two more. We'll see how the, the second release goes to see if a third time will warrant it. But judging on, on public demand, we'll probably be making it until we die. Um, guys, thank you so much for letting me come in today. Uh, I know it's about almost 10 a.m., and uh, I'm going to let you all open up the bar now. But um, otherwise, I, I appreciate your time. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having us. Take care. I'm here at Mad Tree 2.0 in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm joined by Brady Duncan, co-founder of Mad Tree, and uh, Andrew Carley. He's the Kentucky State Sales Manager. Guys, thanks so much for having me today. Absolutely. We appreciate it. So what exactly were you doing before Mad Tree started? Um. So, yeah, I, uh, quick background on myself, uh, Brady, uh, one of the co-founders, um, uh, born in Maslin, Ohio. So a uh, little town, about three and a half hours, kind of northeast of Cincinnati, um, high school football town. Um, when you grow up in Maslin, you're born, or if you're born in Maslin Hospital, they give you these little footballs. And on one side, it has the little uh, uh, OB mascot. 
And on the other side, it says don't do drugs sponsored by D.A.R.E. So it's meant to, to encourage kids to play football. So I did not play football and I did drugs. So I did exactly what they what they uh, advised you not to do. I didn't do any hard drugs. Um, but uh, So the alternative to sports is, is drugs. I mean, okay, I, cool. I drank beer in high school, right? I mean, that, that's pretty much it. Um, that's where it all started. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, born up there, um, uh, got my degree at University of Dayton um, in marketing and public relations. Um, moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, my wife was moving down there to get her PhD. So I worked for two years down there doing, uh, for a company called SurfPro, doing like relationship sales marketing. Um, she had two years left to, to complete her degree. I said, perfect time to go back. Um, got into uh, the University of Alabama MBA program. Um, through that, got hooked up with Procter & Gamble. Um, and I pursued it pretty hard. I wanted to kind of move back to Ohio, um, you know, going to school in Dayton, I knew Cincinnati pretty well, um, you know, a great town. So I kind of jumped on that opportunity, um, did a few internships with Procter & Gamble, and then got hired on full-time in, when was that, 2008? From what I know, P&G's interviewing uh, an application um, format is just really rigorous. Is that right? Yeah, and it's even gotten tougher. Yeah. Um, there's like a test that you take, and I guess I yeah. passed the test. <laughs> um, I don't know how, because some people I hear don't pass the test are much smarter than me. You didn't pass the test? <laughs> I didn't pass the test. <laughs> um, so I worked there for four years doing business analytics. Um, and then really about six months in, uh, I met uh, two uh, co-founders, uh, Jeff and Kenny. Um, we were They were independently homebrewing. I was homebrewing with someone else. Um, and it was just kind of a love and a curiosity for beer. Um, we always really enjoyed kind of good beer and just understanding how to make good beer. Um, so... You know, they were both working for Northrop Grumman, um, doing uh, defense contracting, space space radars. I still don't know exactly what they did because they had security clearances and they can't talk about it. Um, but we kind of joined up and, and we took a very methodical approach to our business, which is kind of uh, still, you know, how we operate at this day. So, you know, a little bit where kind of the name Mad Tree comes from, um, you know, as we were brewing, um, started in Kenny's basement and then moved to my basement. It was this kind of very, you know, scientific kind of employing the scientific method, um, you know, changing one ingredient at a time. So a lot of the beers like Happy Amber, Psychopathy, um, you know, we brewed those beers, you know, 20, 30 plus times, you know, change an ingredient taste, change an ingredient taste. So, you know, we were, we were only homebrews for about four or five years, but we kind of dove in uh, pretty quick. Um, then we put a business plan together. You know, I think in order to be successful in any industry, you have to have a passion for the product as well as a business sense, um, you know, smart guys, but we had never run a business before. So we really spent about three, three and a half years just kind of scoping out, you know, how would we distribute our product? Where would we distribute it? Um, you know, what's our marketing plan? What's our story? Um, just kind of putting all the pieces together. Um, you know, we felt good about that and we launched in January of 2013. Um, and we had some solid momentum. We'd done a nice job kind of tying into the community before we launched. So I think by the time the beer came out, um, you know, people were kind of ready. And, and really since 2013, it's just been a uh, as best as we can kind of keep up. Um, you know, we have outages where we where we run out of beer. Um, and that's what this whole Mad Tree 2.0 expansion is about. So excellent. And Andrew, what, what about you? How did you get involved with this and how long have you been with them? Yeah, so I've been with Mad Tree for going on a year and a half now. Uh, my background was same. I undergrad at NKU, local college. After my uh, undergrad experience, traveled the country, got into craft beer, decided to pursue this with a passion. 
Um, I hopped onto the wholesaler world for a few years. So I started with Ohio Valley in Cincinnati, which is one of Heidelberg's sister companies doing their craft division. Uh, I was in purchasing and operations for about two years total. Ultimately got over the whole beer buying team for the company. I had 12 buyers under me. Um, jumped to the Kentucky side for Heidelberg and did uh, the Northern Kentucky craft beer uh, sales specialist. At that time, um, got my MBA from Xavier, um, but the end goal was always to work for a brewery. Um, Brady and I actually briefly dabbled and chatted even before I joined Mad Tree. Didn't time up at the time, but uh, jumped over to Victory Brewing Company um, when they launched Kentucky back in 2014, I believe. So kicked off um, the Victory expansion in Kentucky and took over Southern Ohio sales as well. Um, that obviously with this massive expansion, reconnected with Brady and hopped in the Mad Tree board and um, Without a doubt, there's about no other breweries in the greater Cincinnati area that I'd work for, and I'm very proud to be part of the team. Yeah, thank you. So before we get on to talking about Matry 2.0, let's talk about 1.0. Can you tell me a little bit about this, the space that you had there? How'd you find it? And then what kind of made you move on from it? Yeah, so um, currently we're located um, kind of exit 8 off of 71. That's kind of Matry 1.0. Um, you know, great space, very close. We were looking pretty heavily in the Oakley area. Um, we also were looking downtown. Um, but really, you know, kind of our passion for this, um, I live in Madisonville, uh, which is just right outside of kind of the Oakley neighborhood. Um, the other two co-founders, uh, live in Oakley. Um, so we always wanted to be close to this area. We found, um, the two buildings that we're currently in over at 1.0 and the location there was just kind of perfect right off the highway. There wasn't much else around it, but we could kind of own it and, and, um, you know, kind of right out. Well, what we thought at the time was this was our, our forever home. Um, you know, our projections, we thought, you know, if we did 10,000 barrels in five years that we were crushing it. And here we are year four doing 20-something thousand barrels um, and well on our way to doing more of that with this expansion. Um, so the, the space over there was awesome. It's about a 1,600-square-foot tap room, um, about a 900-square-foot outdoor beer garden. Um, and then uh, production facilities, about 8,000 square feet. But then we do have kind of a separate warehouse next door where we basically store cans and have all of our barrel aging. Um, we probably have, I don't know, two to three to 400 barrels um, kind of aging next door. Um, you know, we've, we've maxed that place out. We brew 33 times a week, um, which is, you know, kind of crazy on a 15-barrel system. Uh, we are beating the absolute crap out of that thing. Um, so we're definitely getting our money's worth on that system, but you know, we, we have pumps failing and stuff like that. It's just that the system's not designed to do, um, what we're doing. So we have no more space to fit fermenters, uh, parking became an issue. Um, so that's what kind of in 2014 kicked off our search. You know, we were starting to see the writing on the wall that, you know, there were no, there were no more possibilities at that space. So we started looking, um, for new space. And then tell me a little bit about the space that we're currently in. Yeah, so this is uh, much, much larger. Um, this better be our forever home or I'm done because I'm not doing this again. We've always joked that we're really good at building breweries. We're just not sure how good we are at operating them. Um, but no, this is a, um, uh, what's the total square footage of this thing? Probably somewhere around 60,000 square feet. So the tap room, six to 7,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet outdoor beer garden. Uh, the production brewery sits in about 20,000, maybe a little bit less square feet um, in a um, old uh, airplane hangar uh, that was um, built by the War Department, um, uh, which the War Department kind of disbanded, I believe, in 1945. So we think that the War Department built a bunch of these kind of hangars for military bases, and then they had excess and they sold them off to businesses. So I don't think they... The military actually did anything here. I think they just sold the hangar. So that's where the brewery is located. It gives us ton of, tons of space to expand. Um, you know, right now we have six fermenters in there. 
um, you know, we can e- easily fit another 20 fermenters in there. Um, so, you know, we're kind of building this thing uh, in order to grow. We do have two private event spaces, um, one larger space, which we can host weddings, a smaller space for kind of corporate events. And then we kind of have a whole upstairs to this place that we're not really sure what we're going to do with. But um, yeah, a lot of really cool space, much more parking. Uh, it still does get busy. Uh, the good thing is we have overflow parking nearby, um, but I think we sit on 230 spaces here. So, what uh, what beers do you focus on here at Natri? Styles. I'll let you take styles. this, Mr. Carly. Um, so we have got a very broad portfolio and book on what we're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, our four core, technically a five cores, but the four cores that we can every day are psychopathy, um, like I said, our everyday IPA, a lot of the packed Northwest hops, a lot of uh, grass-like qualities, not really aggressive, bitter, um, heavy malt backbone, happy amber, a nice amber ale. Uh, Lift is a Kolsch style, so lighter, crisp, clean, definitely a gateway uh, and lighter style for that we typically enjoy more than more than most. Uh, and PSA is a new offering, um, an American pale ale, citrus, Simcoe, mosaic hops. Um, the big citrus forward beer is still not too aggressive. A lot of hop aromatics without being too aggressively bitter at 4.5%. Um, then from there, we've got a broad portfolio of seasonal rotation, uh, rotating offerings um, from adjunct forward beers to true traditional styles. Um, we definitely have got a broad broad portfolio to fit uh, what almost anyone would be looking for. Um, and outside of that as well, I mean, if you come to the tap room, there's about 15 other options that are draft only that uh, we'll, we'll definitely have something for any drinker out there. Um, we have a lot of creativity on our brewing team, um, and we encourage our staff as well to partake in uh, developing recipes and pitch them to the brewers and see what they come up with. So um, there's definitely a beer here for every beer drinker out there. And, and what is it that you gave me to sample this morning? Yep. So I gave you um, Tree Search. We're actually working on a few, uh, dialing that in for a, a new seasonal at this point. So um, heavy Citroen Amarillo additions, uh, basically about 7.5%, a lighter, softer mouthfeel, not too aggressively bitter, um, but we'll have some fun stuff with that down uh, in the next couple of weeks as well. All right. Um, how many how many employees does Mad Tree uh currently have oh well my partner listens to this he's gonna be so disappointed because uh it's funny he's the numbers guy um i'm always approximate so any number i give you is like plus or minus 10 percent. i think i can get that accurate um we are approaching 90 employees um at the end of the year uh we've pretty much since the beginning of 2017 we've just about doubled Um, a lot of that has come in um, private event staff as well as bartenders um, we knew the demand for the new tap room would be strong. Um, we did not anticipate how strong it's been. So we had to really gear up fast. Um, and then we're getting ready to hire three more salespeople. Um, and then potentially, you know, one to two more production people and maybe even another person on the marketing team. So, um, I, I think it's realistic by the end of the year, we'll probably be at a, about a hundred employees. Okay. So organizational culture and, and organizational fit community, it's all really important for any any business, any organization to succeed. And I know it's, it's hard to say with that many employees, but if you did have to say, what do all those employees just have in common? What does it take to work at Matry? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, and look, I'm obviously biased. I don't think there's a culture at many businesses that is as strong as this culture is. There are certainly challenges. There's no doubt about that, especially when you grow as fast as we've grown. Um, I think, A, it starts from the top down. We care. Um, but I think probably the most important thing that, that when you look across our people is you're not like trying to push someone to get something done. Generally, people are just self-motivated and they're passionate about this industry and this place and what they're doing. 
that they just want to make it happen. I mean, I can tell you our sales guys, they don't want to go out to an account and not see us on tap. And I don't need to create a scorecard and say, well, you know, we need to be on tap at these places because if I need to motivate you that way, you probably don't need to be here. And our people don't react well to that. Same thing with our brewers. I mean, you know, when our brewers taste a beer, if something's not um, to their satisfaction, they're disappointed. I mean, they're they're self-driven to create kind of the best beer they can. And and that's that's across our organization. We have a lot of people um, who left. I mean, just like, you know, the three co-founders who left better paying jobs um, to come work um, for Madtree. You know, people across, you know, banking, um, you know, uh, other breweries, um, you know. So, um, you know, I'd be a lot richer man if I, if I stayed at Procter & Gamble. And there's probably uh, a lot of people here who could say that. So. I was just speaking with Listerman Brewing uh, here in Cincinnati as well, and uh, they they suggested that the state of Ohio is very friendly towards brewers in the way that they have some regulations and everything. Do you agree with that statement? I do. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, so far, um, you know, there's been no state excise tax. There is legislation. Uh, sorry, well, the, 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 there, there's increased legislation on on a state excise tax. Um, I don't think it's going to go through. I'm very hopeful. Um, kind of everyone. Beer and wine wholesalers, distributors, no one is really um, pushing this because it would actually put Ohio breweries at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel pretty good about that. Um, yeah, and I mean, generally, you know, I mean, taxes are kind of a big thing, but generally, this this state's pretty friendly to breweries, um, which has been you know advantageous for us. And um, and you know, the cool thing is we we have the ear of you know um, congressmen um and senators across the state um you know they see the kind of explosive growth of this industry and how many jobs are are being created and not just direct jobs but all the indirect jobs i mean you look at you know we just spent close to 20 million dollars on this facility and you know i mean we had a crew of i mean probably across this whole project three to four hundred um you know different mainly you know contractors construction workers out here working on this place so this is absolutely you know adding to um you know, kind of the wealth of, of Cincinnati and the state of Ohio. It doesn't seem that any um, craft brewery has, quote unquote, sold out to um, AB InBev. Is that true? And if so, why do you think that's why do you think that's the case in the entire state of Ohio? Yeah, um, it's funny. I never really thought about that. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, you know, I mean, I think this is kind of a a bit of a blue collar state. Um, and I know, it, you know, it varies across the region, but, you know, I, I don't see, which I think is cool. I don't see a lot of people in the state of Ohio and Kentucky for that matter, um, really getting into the business to kind of make money. Um, and, you know, we're a state that's maybe a little bit behind, not, you know, calling out other states that they have this, but, you know, I don't think people get into this industry in the state of Ohio with the idea of, man, we can make so much money off this. I mean, I can tell you there's not a decision, well, very few decisions that I make in this company that start with money. Money's important. Don't get me wrong. We have to be profitable and all that kind of stuff. But it starts with how do we make the best beer we can make? How do we get this beer in the hands of consumers? It's a pride thing. Um, so I think, you know, when you start off with that premise, you're far less likely to sell. Um, you know, I don't know if breweries have been approached in the state. I'm sure they have. Um, but, you know, looking across, I don't see many breweries that I, I believe in the state of Ohio or really Kentucky that would probably have interest. I'm sure AB has interest in getting a, a brewery in this region. And who knows, it probably happened the next year or two. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, to me, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of, uh, breweries that would have interest in that. Uh, you mentioned, you know, community and everything being pretty important to Madtree. How, how does Madtree give back? 
Yeah, I mean, community is always, I mean, frankly, that is kind of is our marketing budget. I mean, we do, you know, we do some stuff outside of that. But, you know, community community started for us, you know, we have this saying kind of beer builds community and community builds beer. Um, and really what that means is it's kind of this intertwined circle of, you know, we kind of joke, did the, did the beer build the community or did the community build the beer? And, you know, when we were homebrewing in our basements and going out and seeking investment, you know, our investors were coming in and helping us, you know, demo out our first tap room, build our first tap room, brew beers, package beers. And in turn, you know, we were doing uh, charitable events, community events, working with, uh, you know, local organization Starfire. We do a ton of stuff with them. You know, we have four to five core charities that we support large every month. And then we also have kind of charities of the month. Um, and, you know, we're much more likely, you know, if someone says, hey, can you give me $500 to pour poor beer nah, i don't know but if it's a charity coming forward um you know we're much uh, much more likely to engage in something like that um I, I just kind of core to what we are i mean we're you know we're not a bunch of hippies but we kind of have a little bit of the hippie mindset i think you kind of see that in craft beer um you know uh maybe not as much kind of type a uh a- aggression but we certainly care about what we're doing I'll, I'll uh, let Andrew answer this question first, but you know, if you if you weren't working in beverage, where would you be right now? Uh, where would I be? Uh, like I said, previous world, I try to chase the corporate, you know, the corporate dollar as well as Brady mentioned. Um, you know, before I got in the craft beer scene, but um, to be fair and honest, my dad's an entrepreneur, owns his own company. Um, you know, it's not something I'm passionate about, but I'm very eager to make sure when he re- is ready to, you know, pass that off to my brother to help him out as best I can with my MBA background um, and go go that route. Um, not leave Matry by any means, but help help my brother out and grow. So, <laughs> uh, my my passion is definitely stay with Matry uh, for the long haul. Man, I'm very very passionate about what we're doing. Um, but yeah, if I was not in the craft beer industry, it'd be uh, more of the blue collar worker and working working with my dad, um, building up his business as best we could um, in the garage door industry. So um, it was comfortable having a backup plan, definitely. Um, but I'm glad that uh, my brother is. Uh, fervently chasing my dad's dream and I'm chasing mine at this point. So uh, that would be my, my, my backup plan most likely. Fair enough. And Brady? Um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of, uh, once I zeroed in on this, this was kind of the plan. This um, is it. <laughs> I, I did get a call uh, like two or three weeks before I was leaving P&G and I'd already, I, I'd already you know, put in notice and all that kind of stuff. Um, I got a call to be an analyst in, in Rome, which would have been really cool. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I, I maybe hopefully would have taken a, an abroad assignment with PNG, and I I loved working there. I really really like the people. I think they do a nice job fostering kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, but at the end of the day, no disrespect to any of the products. I'm just not passionate about the products, and um, you know I just couldn't work in that structure, even as great of the structure is for a company of that size. So I would have had the itch to do something. I, I don't know what. Um, but uh, yeah. Any, any other you know future events or, or releases? Anything that you want people to know about coming up? You know, talk about Kentucky. Um, so we don't have any firm firm dates yet, but be on the lookout. Um, we are getting ready to launch the Louisville Market the week of August seventh. Um, we've got some cool stuff lined up um, that we're said down in some details with uh, the Holy Grail, Louisville Beer Store, Hopcat, uh, Four Pegs, you know Germantown. We'll be bouncing all over. We're going to come down with a. A big team the week of the seventh, and I'll be carrying over the week of the the fourteenth. Um, so we're very very excited about that. As I mentioned, I've I've been down the market previously, and I'm looking forward to selling our wares in, in the bluegrass state. 
Um, we'll be hiring a full-time rep in Louisville, so you should see a lot of action down there um, pretty consistently at that point. Um, the same in those folks that are in the Lexington and Central Kentucky area. We're launching the week of August 21st. Um, obviously, we'll be doing some launch events at the Beer Trap, uh, Village Idiot, Pazos, um, you know, the other Hopcat over there, uh, Pies and Pines, Arcadium. We've We've, we've got many, many events squared away. We'll be unloading some of our cellared beers, our new items, as well as, most importantly, our cores that allow us to do what we're doing. So um, both weeks, August 7th in Louisville and August 21st in Lexington, come out and say, hey, meet the team. Um, we're we're going to go big on this this launch. So we're looking forward to it. Uh, Brady, if, if I wanted to start a if I wanted to start up a brewery in Cincinnati, what, what advice would you have for me? Hmm. Um. Yeah, maybe a few things. I think uh, one, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, um, attack it from both sides, right? Passion for the product, uh, solid business understanding. Um, I think people who kind of make connections and really get in and learn the industry and kind of understand not just how to get their brand off the ground, but kind of understand where they want their brand to go, um, do well. Um, You know, marketing is important. Frankly, in this industry, I think it probably drives too much purchase, <laughs> um, even on the craft world. Um, but, you know, that's kind of right. That's that's evolving with the fact that there's now what is the number five or six thousand breweries. Um, so, you know, you got to find a way to kind of stand out. Um, you know, quality beer is is always number one. I know everyone kind of says it. Um, you know, I will, I'll say a mad tree. That's that's not a marketing term. Um, you know, we were talking earlier. We have you know five full time people um, employed. Um, on our quality team, we're likely going to hire one more over the next year. Um, and the amount of data that we're collecting and sensory analysis that, that, that we are performing on our beers, you know, the beer has to taste the same. It tastes great every time you have it. Um, and, you know, we're, you know, we're to the point where there's just, there's, there's no exception around that. Um, you know, and I think, I think breweries that do that um, succeed. You know, I think if you've got a solid, solid marketing plan on, on how to, you know, get awareness out there and you're making good beer, um, you know, you can achieve. I do think it's going to be harder for breweries to get a lot of kind of chain space, um, not just chain, but also just a lot of space um, with packaged beer. Um, you know, I think the, I don't want to say the window's running out. I mean, we could certainly still see breweries go regional and do extremely well. Um, but getting into it now, it's it's so crowded now. Um, but I do I do continue to see tap rooms are going to be really successful. Um, you know, I, I it, probably not a great idea to start a brewery if you're not going to have a tap room. <laughs> um, although you can certainly be successful that way. It's just whatever your plan is. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's kind of the fundamentals. All right. I think Andrew and I have some beer, beer to finish. So I really appreciate your time and going to call it a day. Cheers. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you.